When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Welcome back. It's part two of the hashtag Goat Cricketer podcast special. Who is the greatest Australian test cricketer of all time? Myself, James and Jared Kimber continue our chat as we look to find out who is the hashtag Goat Cricketer for Australia test match cricket. It's that Badger style. Shane Warne is your next one, and I guess that probably has a ripple of applause from around the world. A fine nomination, a very, very fine player. Yeah, I don't think there's, there's much more that needs to be said about him. Uh, he, he he basically revived a lost art, I think, outside of Pakistan and maybe India. I think Legspin was really struggling uh, around the world at that point. I don't think you'd have Tabriz Shamsi in, um, in South Africa right now if it wasn't for Shane Warne. Um, and so the ability of those sorts of things to happen, uh, you know, sort of says uh, everything about him. He put so many revs on the ball that he basically bowled his finger and his shoulder into the ground. I think that had he been in an age where uh, perhaps uh, we, he could have been kept a little bit more, I think he would have been an even better bowler. But the fact that even with those injuries, he still was like early Shane Warne was great because he was unplayable. Late Shane Warne became great in a completely different way. There's almost there's almost a Richard Hadley like trend. Uh, you know, uh, if Hadley yeah. was great in both eras, and Hadley wasn't Hadley wasn't great in the seventies when he was an out and out fastballer. He became great later on. Warne managed to be great with natural gifts, and then became uh, and continued to be great when the natural gifts went away. I think that um, on its own says what a phenomenal player he is. And, you know, uh, to be an Australian spinner and stick around for that long in general is a phenomenal thing because, uh, you know, it's not the easiest place to bowl spin in the world. I mean, there's obviously that ball of a century against Gatting. But the thing I remember about the early Shane Warne was Richie Benno on commentary. And Richie Benno, obviously a fine spin bowler in his own right. But 
just purred watching Shane Warne. He was just he could sense the mm. excitement inside Richie Benner because he just knew he was something special. But he went into kind of celebrity land, didn't he? As well, he he was bigger than cricket to, at some stages yeah. in his life because you know you, usually cricketers, despite the fact that they're successful, they're all fairly normal guys. But Shane Warne kind of transcended and kind of went into pop culture as well, really. Well, Nike, and Nike tried to make him into a huge thing. Nike's first foray into cricket, really, was Shane Warne. He had the Nike earring. They, um, there's all these photos of him in the, what, mid-90s with, with Michael Jordan. And it's hilarious because, you know, Michael Jordan, six foot six, incredibly toned, brilliant athlete. And next to him is this fat guy, really, because Warne was quite overweight at the time. Beach blonde hair looks like he's won a contest. And yet they were, at that stage, two of the greatest athletes on earth. I always think back to something very interesting with Warren. You mentioned the Gatting ball. So the Gatting ball, obviously, that original ball is unplayable because of the drift and then the spin. So if you watch it before it bounces, it's almost more remarkable before it bounces than when it bounces. But there's that moment where Gatting sort of looks down, looks at the square leg umpire, he's completely confused. And then uh, over 10 years later, when Warren's shoulder is on its way out, his fingers have been redone a bunch of times as well. Um, and he's bowling to um, Andrew Strauss, and he gets one to, I think Strauss tries to pad up, and he rips it out of the footmark. And Strauss just keeps looking at the ground and looking back at the stump. To be able to bamboozle people to that level for more than a decade, you know, we talk a lot about mystery bowlers. You know, Murali and Warren, their real talent wasn't mystery. It was that their basic skill set was just so extraordinary from beginning to end. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, if, as much as anything else, even if he ended up with a bowling average of 30 or 32, which he didn't, obviously, um, he still would have been so remarkable because of his ability to create those moments. And Mike Gatting was a very good player of spin as well. You're not just bamboozling somebody like me who would be absolutely hopeless. You're bamboozling somebody that is is just a very, very fine player. So, yeah, terrific, terrific nomination there. Shane Warne goes into the hat, and I'm sure we'll get a very long way in the vote when it goes on the at cricket underscore budget Twitter feed. My next nomination, Ricky Ponting, the Australian captain during that 2005 Ashes series. But... You, know, you you look at him in world standing during his period, and you're talking about you know, relating batsmen in their eras. Well, Ricky Ponting was right up there. He, he had Sachin Tendulkar, he had Brian Lara, but you know, his stats pretty pretty decent. 168 Test matches, averaged over 50, high score of 257, 4100. Captain the side for a long time as well. He had his uh, kind of issues at the start of his career, didn't he? He had a little bit of a fiery temperament and what have you. But he reined himself in. And I, I saw a, a, an interview with him. I don't know if it was on YouTube or on telly or whatever. But as a cricket badger, you tend to kind of like find your interviews where you can get them. And he, mm. he was talking about his career. And I, I just thought the way he spoke about it and the way he kind of controlled himself and the way he maintained his career and maintained himself and actually improved as he, as he got older, I thought was testament to himself. And, you know, those stats stand alongside most people that have ever played the game, a really good player. The only thing I'd, I'd be interested to talk to you about, Jared, is, is I've always thought mm-hmm. with Ricky Ponting, um, you look at the great captains, and it's easy to say, but it's, it's easy to um, captain of a fantastic side. You know, I, I reckon I could have gone into that Australian side and won test matches captaining that team. Because if you're in a bit of a hole, Glenn, you take that end. Shane, you take that end. We'll take a few wickets. We'll get ourselves back into this match. Was Ricky Ponting a fantastic captain? No, I don't think he was. Um, I think in another country, I could almost see, I, I suppose he's a little bit like Alistair Cook. Um, but I think in general, another country, I'm not sure he even would have been the captain, certainly not long term. Um, but Australia generally likes to give it to their best batsman. As a, as a, we, we kind of start with the idea of giving it to our best batsman and we work back from there if that's not going to work. And as you said, he was never going to have a bad record because of the team he had. 
uh, he wasn't. It, it's quite interesting listening to him now on commentary. He seems a lot better now. He, I think, he played a lot on emotion in the way that he played. He's sort of this uber professional guy, but he also, you know, there was a lot of him trying to take people down. And I think that didn't work as well for him in captaincy as as it did uh, in in his batting. Uh, also, I think looking forward, I think people are going to maybe have Lara and Tendulkar ahead of him from that era. But the interesting thing about that is, I think at his absolute best, he was as good, if not better, than those two. It's just that they um, had much longer careers and had a higher highs um, than than Ponting did. Um, and he he really should have ended up with a best average in the high 50s. And he didn't, partly because he played on for far too long. But just an undisputed great of the game. I, I worry a little bit about his place in, in sort of cricket history because Right after him, we've had Steve Smith. Um, but, you know, I, I know a lot of younger fans now are already saying to me, you know, what was the thing with Ponta? In, someone, I had someone on Twitter the other day going, I, you know, I, I watched him bat from, you know, 2010 onwards and I don't get it. And I was like, well, you had to have watched him between 2000 and 2010 to really get how much better he was than anyone else. And also, you know, he was probably one of the first cricketers outside of Asia, I would say, you know, really took one-day cricket seriously. I had a huge interview with him one time, like a couple of hours, um, talking about one-day cricket. And he said it never occurred to him that one-day cricket wasn't as important as test cricket. And that was, a, it's a really interesting thing because that wasn't the, the, the view at that time. And, you know, it's still something now. I know, you know, having chatted to a lot of T20 specialists, they, they think some of their success is just because they've taken it seriously and other players haven't. But yeah, just a, a, a brilliant batsman who at times seems to make hundreds just despite the opposition. And, you know, tough as nails and, you know, maybe not a great captain, but certainly uh, one of the greatest batsmen that Australia's ever had, you know, by a long distance. Really good fielder as well, wasn't he? Really good fielder. And he goes oh, yeah. he goes into the hat too. The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look. And give them a follow on Twitter at TV Sports Blog. We'll go on to your fourth nomination, Jared Kimber. Who are you going to go for next? Uh, Steve Smith. He is, when he first came onto the scene, I didn't think he could bat at all. He played in a test match. He played in that test match at Headingley that you have already talked about earlier in the podcast. So that's quite handy against Pakistan. Uh, he made 77 off the top of my head and smashed um, Dinesh Kanaria, handled the scene bowling quite well. I remember going into the press conference, I think it was me or Bryden Coverdale said to Ricky Ponting, this guy's just made 77. He bats, um, you know, number five or six for New South Wales. Is he ever going to, uh, you know, bat in the top order for Australia? And Ricky Ponting said no. <laughs> now, that is, uh, you know, you've got someone who is a brilliant judge of cricketers in Ponting, someone who understands batting to another level, um, looking at Steve Smith and going, this guy's not a batsman. To go from that to where he is now, is one of the most remarkable turnarounds of any cricketer that I think we've ever seen. Did, um, did you see what have, Justin Langer said about him when he first saw him? He was in the nets and he was he's throwing, giving him some throwdowns, and he just looked at him and just what what on earth is that? What what on earth is he doing? How is he going to actually yeah. make any runs? And then you know he, he admits now that you know he's the best batsman he's he's worked with, and it, it was those. I mean, I, you, you talk about that Test match. I remember him coming down the wicket and absolutely smashing the ball in, onto the top of the mm. rugby stand at the far end. You know, you, you could see it there, but it was a very because he was so quirky, and all of that stayed with him. Obviously, you know, he's still quirky. He's very quirky, but because of that, people kind of almost dismissed him, didn't they? From a technical standpoint, especially back then, uh, it didn't. He didn't make sense. We didn't have a nearest neighbour 
sort of analysis for him. There wasn't anyone who'd ever succeeded with a technique like that at that stage. I suppose looking back, if, if you know, the closest batsman he is, it's funny, I remember, you know, Don Bradman saying that, I think I used to bat like this Sachin Tendulkar guy. Whereas in actual fact, Don Bradman probably batted much more like Steve Smith in that they both did one very simple thing brilliantly, which is they both have taken away the channel outside off stump. So bowlers can't bowl there to them because where they hit the ball. So Bradman, if you got a bit too wide outside of off stump, he would guide the ball down to third man. Um, so if you got a bit closer to the stump, he would whip you through the leg side. You know, Steve Smith is very similar. He goes through point and through the leg side. And what that means is a normal bowler's defense against someone like that is just building a lot of pressure by bowling just outside of stump. You could do that to Ricky Ponting, um, and you could do that to Damian Martin. You know, there's a, most great batsmen, you can slow them down by bowling that line. You can't do that to Steve Smith. And we didn't have anyone to compare that to because it didn't really make sense at the time. Um, and also, when you talk about that innings in, in, in Leeds, no one ever really doubted that he was a good player of spin. And he's continued to be a good player of spin. It's just that it, if, if you think about the moving ball, we all thought he would struggle against the moving ball. And if you go back to um, the, the Ashes that he did well, uh, you know, so he did well in 13, made 100, I think, but it was on the flat pitch. Uh, or did he make 90? He, he made a score, I think, at, at Old Trafford. Um, batted okay in another innings as well, but they were on the flatter pitches. He then came back uh, for the next series and he made the double 100 at Lords. But when the ball moved around again, people said he wasn't going to be able to handle it. He then comes back the next time, and when the ball's moving around, he's better than he's ever been. He has this ability to find flaws within his game and, and eradicate them, and he doesn't play cricket like normal players. And that makes him almost impossible, in a way that Shane Warne was almost impossible. Because the problem with spinners before Shane Warne and before Murali is they were more like Anil Kumble. In their conditions, they were absolutely brilliant. But you took them away from their conditions, and they really struggled. And I think that's what you're seeing with swing bowlers as well. You know, that's why swing bowlers struggle because you have them in conditions where they swing. Well, Steve Smith's a bit similar to that sort of player in that he, he basically has, there are no conditions in which he cannot be successful in and that he cannot dominate because he, you know, on a spinning pitch, he's brilliant to spinners. On a seeming pitch, he takes away the channel outside off stump. And we've also seen him basically handle fast bowling as well. You know, absolute um, uh, otherworldly fast bowling about as well as anyone can also. So you're in a position where there's almost nothing left to try against him. And uh, that's why he has an average in the 60s. And, you know, why he's the closest thing we've ever had to Bradman is because we haven't worked him out. Now, whether we can work him out, I don't know. I spent an incredible amount of time watching him bat over the last few years. And I have seen more weird fielding positions used for him than I have for Lara, um, Tendulkar and Ponting combined. And people still haven't worked out where to bowl to him or how to bowl to him. And I think that the closest you could get to a weakness is this left arm finger spin. And he's still going to average around 40 to 45 against it, <laughs> which is not a weakness. It's, it's, it's a blip. Yeah, I mean, as, a, as an Englishman watching the, the, the last two Ashes series, he just burnt onto my retinas. He just kind of never seemed to be not batting. It was just ridiculous. And he, I mean, I, I've spoken to Jason Gillespie on the on the podcast, and he, I, I, obviously this is called the Cricket Badger podcast, but in Australia, is it Cricket Nuffy that you use as a term, of a similar kind of term? Yeah, no, uh, Nuffy or um, uh, what, was, um, what was the Cricket Tragic is the one that the uh, bad Prime Minister used. So those are the sort of the normal ones, yeah. 
I mean, the, re- the reason I say that is because that, that is basically Steve Smith, isn't it? I mean, you, you hear the stories yeah. of him batting in the shower, you hear the stories of people in the hotel room and hearing the ball bouncing around in the hallway and he's out there doing something and, and shadow batting on trains and buses and whatever else, wherever he can stand up and has a little bit of space, he shadow bats. And we, we've spoken on, on the podcast recently about, you know, cricket's quite a simple game. Sometimes people overanalyze it. If you think too much about it, maybe it detracts from your overall batting. But he's an exception to that rule. He's, he's an exception to most rules, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if he has Asperger's or if he's uh, you know he has some sort of um, you know advanced way of concentrating or you know I would never know what that sort of diagnosis would be you know and don't mean that in a negative way but I mean you know he's clearly not built like other cricketers I've ever come across he is completely one dimensional um, person I can't think of many other people in professional sport that that feel that way and so yeah he is a very unique. Uh, human being who has, you know, who's almost made to make runs and and not do that much else. And you can you can see how he would have been sucked in by the whole sandpaper thing. I mean, him and Warner were probably blamed for something that, let's be honest, the coaches were telling them to do. Everyone was involved there. Everyone knew about it. But you could see how someone like him would be sucked in because I don't think he has as many frames of reference outside of cricket in the way that someone like Tim Payne does. Tim Payne's a fairly normal human being. You know, in my brief interactions with him, I've always just thought he was a normal human being. I've never felt like Steve Smith is that normal a person. Everything is focused on this one particular, you know, skill set. And he just happens to be as almost probably, I mean, he might be the second best batsman we've ever had. And when you factor in all the difficulties of um, of modern, modern cricket, you know, the Twitter cycles and having to play on many different kinds of pitches, video analysis and everything, to have someone averaging what he does at this stage, uh, you know, he came back after a year out of the game and he came back into a period where no one in test cricket could hit the ball off the square. It's one of the, you know, for a couple of years, it's been one of the most bowler-dominated periods we've ever had in test cricket, or well, certainly since World War II. Um, and uh, he comes back and makes it all look silly. So he, he just is just a, an entirely different creature to everyone else um, in the game. My fourth nomination, and I don't think this is too controversial, Dennis Lilly. Arguably uh, the greatest Australian fast bowler of all time. He's now 70, which makes me feel very, very old indeed. But he <laughs> took 355 test match wickets. And it was just, I mean, you, you kind of, when, when you see a an opposition, and obviously for, for all of my life, Australia have been the opposition. They're the old enemy. It's the ashes. It's fierce, competitive, all the rest of it. Um, Dennis Lilly was never a, a person that you wanted to see bowling um, because he was always a threat. And um, I think most of the English batsmen at that time saw him as such um, quite mean. He had that tash. He was kind of fairly uh, sort of flamboyant in the way he kind of strolled around with his hair and, he, and his, his, his facial hair and all the rest of it. But what a bowler. What a bowler he was. He had his couple of controversies as well with his aluminium bat and all the rest of it, which was not in Test Match cricket. But the... He was an absolutely superb bowler. To take 355 Test match wickets at 23.92, as we said before, that stands parallel to you know, any of the greats of the game. Absolutely fantastic, I think, and uh, definitely my fourth nomination. Yeah, I mean, I, just on his impact to Australia, if you listen to the movies and movie stars and things in Australia, you know, radio um, broadcasts and early TV, you know, around the 50s and 60s, people were still talking on TV and in radio with a very English accent. You know, we it was a put-on accent quite, quite often, but there was still, you know, there was still a, you know, Errol, Errol Flynn sounds more English than Australian, for instance, you know, when you listen to the old movies. And I think there was still a real attitude of that. And it sort of started to break out in the late 60s and into the early 70s. And it was really the Australian rock scene 
which sort of exploded from nowhere and um, and cricket, which did that. And so very much, you know, you could say that the, the sort of birth of Australiana, you know, drinking beers and mustaches and chest hair and, you know, this arrogant, you know, we, we hadn't really accomplished much as, as a nation. We basically decimated our indigenous population. We'd, we'd hi, hi, you know, gone to a few different beaches, but we hadn't really seen much of the rest of our own country. We'd followed England and America into, into random wars and all those sorts of things. At that stage, we, you know, Australia wasn't really that known globally. And yet suddenly you had, you know, Dennis Lilly strutting. And, you know, uh, I think that that became what, what I think Australia, Australia, you know, the sense of Australia really came through from, from that generation. And he became a real poster child for that in Australia. And, it happened, you know, it helped that he was an incredible cricketer. He's also a really interesting cricketer in that if you look at the early footage of him, he bowled very much like Wes Hall. So, he, you know, Wes Hall was a huge figure in Australia, one of the most beloved overseas cricketers that there's ever been in Australia. And he bowled very much like Wes Hall and his body fell apart. And there was no professional structure within cricket. And realistically, we've seen so many young bowlers come up like Dennis Lilly and then never come back properly. Dennis Lilly came back and was better um, after his back injury because he rebuilt his body. Um, and he rebuilt his mind as well. So he yeah, changed you, you, you his were talking about, You were talking about Richard Hadley earlier, but Dennis Lilly was another example of a, a kind of very similar kind of thing because Hadley was quite fiery at the start and came back as very much more controlled. And Lilly did the same thing, didn't he? Yeah, the, the only difference is Lilly was great when he was fast as well. I think he might have got to, I think he might have led the wicket taking in, in one of the calendar years early on, whereas Hadley struggled with that extra pace. So Hadley had to change, whereas Lilly didn't have to change. It's just that he, 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 once his body fell apart, there was, you know, there, there was no other option for him. Um, and eventually, I think Hadley's, uh, uh, you know, his revolution that he, that he gave himself was based on what Lily had done. So they're very intertwined, the two of them. Uh, Hadley ended up with, with the better record, was probably the better bowler for a longer period of time. But Lily was incredible. But, you know, I think there's something, there's something very, you know, Australia, especially in that era, it was a very working class country. It's not now. It's very incredibly middle class country now. But back then, it was very working class. There was still a lot of talking about, you know, um, growing on the on the sheep's back, and you know, you know, the old. I don't know if you've ever seen the hard yakker ads, and you know, we're working hard, we're hardworking people, and all this sort of stuff. It's very interesting that Lily sort of fit into that narrative and ended up sort of leading that narrative very much. You know, we're we're going to through hard work and being and and trying harder than anyone else. Essentially, those two different things. So doing the stuff no one else wants to do and doing it for longer, we're going to change our country. And Dennis Lilly basically did that through his career and then became the world's best bowler. And I think on top of everything else and the style and the way that he looked and everything. And, you know, uh, my, my, my mom, uh, I think I might have quoted her in my book, you know, talking about him. You know, she talks about him more like he was a rock star than, than like he was a cricketer. Uh, you know, I know my dad's greatest uh, thing is that he was compared to Dennis Lilly at club cricket. He still <laughs> talks about that, right? You know, even though he was probably, you know, seven stone heavier than, than Lilly, but he had an outswinger and a beard um, and big flowing hair. So, you know, it's incredible the way that he sort of, he stayed on. And I think that there are certain athletes at certain times, and, you know, going back to what we said about Bradman before, that sort of get elevated beyond their normal deeds because they come along at the right time. And I think Lily was one of those. So as great as he was, and he was brilliant at working out batsmen, incredible bowler. And remember that he, you know, if you're a great bowler from Australia, you almost deserve more credit because those wickets are made for batsmen. You know, the batting averages in Australia are so much higher than anywhere else. We, we almost have to mentally sort of bring the batsmen down a little bit within our, our, our calculations and push the bowlers up 
So to have a great record over that long after coming back and basically, you know, being lost to Australian cricket, um, I think it just says what I, what a great that, that Lily was. Dennis Lee, sporting icon, cultural icon. He goes into the hat as well. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. The listeners are going up every single week through COVID-19. Hopefully, we're giving you a little bit of entertainment to take you away from the troubles in the world. Thank you very much for listening. Loads of great guests planned for the next few weeks as well. So stay tuned to Cricket Badger podcast. Like, subscribe. Thank you so much for your support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Jared Kimber, your fifth nomination, please. Oh, Vic Trumper. Victor Trumper is a, is a guy that I know the name of and I have read a little bit about, but I don't know too much about him, to be honest. Well, he's an incredible figure because at, it, Hobbs and Trumper basically played at the same time. Hobbs obviously went on to play for a lot longer. Uh, uh, Trumper had died and Hobbs was still killing it in Test cricket. But their careers actually overlap a lot. Um, and there is not just Hobbs, um, Clem Hill. There's a lot of guys out there with a higher batting average than Trumper in the same era that he batted in. And yet, almost no one has, put it this way, up until the end of Bradman's career, people were still who saw Trumper were still saying Trumper was better. And yet, he ended up with a batting average off the top of my head, uh, maybe 38, 39. Um, so there's no way would we say that was a great batting average. And he also played in the era, just as when, I don't want to get too much in the specifics on your podcast here, but he played in the era where um, uh, uh, liquid manure came in, so the pitches got better. So he didn't play in the uh, the old cow dung um, era where the ball could just hit, you know, a, a, a piece of uh, turd on the length and, and veer off to the side. <laughs> he literally played when the pitches were, at, you know, getting towards the sort of pitches that we have now. He was absolutely brilliant um, uh, in that era and yet only averaged 39. And so you, you almost have to go back and read between the lines. And I think the first thing that Trumper did, which now seems so normal, is that Trumper hit the ball where Trumper wanted to hit the ball. And other batsmen hit the ball um, depending on the social norms at the time. So if you got a ball, you know, pitched outside of stump, you hit it to the offside. If you look at those famous photos of Trumper, not the very famous one, but from that, that, same, um, uh, that, that same role by that same photographer, you can see photos of him with his foot around middle and leg stump and his bat outside off stump with a closed face. Batsman did, didn't do that. He hit the ball where there was a gap in the field um, or over the field's head in ways that no one had ever done before. He took the game on to a, you know, a spectacular degree um, and played it in his own way. And a bit like Keith Miller, he wasn't a real, he wasn't like Bradman or Steve Smith um, type of player. He didn't try and, he was a bit more like a Damian Martin in that uh, it, when he was needed, uh, he made the runs and sometimes he went missing a little bit. And, you know, that, that affected his overall average. And partly uh, the reason why we probably don't quite see him now the same way that we do. But the fact is that if he was still being compared to Bradman 50 years later, I think that tells you what an incredible player he was. And and one of the reasons was, were, was that he did change the way that cricket was played. You know, he attacked in a way that, you know, uh, players didn't attack again, like uh, the way he um, attacked really until the 90s. That, that's how, how uh, revolutionary his attacking style was. Uh, he hit the ball wherever he wanted in a period where players had never done that before. And then the third thing that he did was, and this is something that haunted Bradman and a lot of good batsmen, is they say Trumper was even better when uh, we have a sticky dog wicket. And, you know, for, some people might remember that phrase. But essentially what that means is, is that we had rain 
and then the sun comes out. And if you've ever played cro- club cricket, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The, is that, the, that, so, the sort that, of wicket that Derek Gunderwood would go to, go to town on? Yeah, it's the sort of wicket where when you're playing, when you're batting against a bowler who's even half decent, you have to play a completely different kind of game because the yeah. ball doesn't bounce the same way. It doesn't react the same way. Um, it can veer sideways. Um, it can bounce up. It goes at a different pace. You're almost playing, you know, sometimes you have to play tennis ball shots. And at other times, you're almost, uh, you know, saving your own life from it, from balls that bounce completely vertical. You know, if you if you read the reports, there's never been a batsman who handled these wickets better than Trumper. And he actually practiced on them. He used to go out at the SCG and in Randwick, and he would literally wet wickets, wait for the sun to come out, and get people to do, for, you know, bowl to him on on sticky dog wickets. Every other cricketer in the history of of cricket didn't even want to go out and bat. And you're talking about an era where teams would reverse their batting order sometimes yeah. if they had a wicket like that because it was so pointless sending your batsman out because you couldn't play normal cricket shots. And yet, Trumper was the, the opposite to that. He had the ability to score um, very, very quick runs. Like, he, he scored quick runs so quickly that they would be, he would still be a quick scorer, um, you know, in certain sessions for today. Uh, and, um, and there aren't that many cricketers of, of his era that, that, you know, that, that can do that. And there weren't many... You know, there weren't cricketers that came after that. Um, he, I think he changed the way that the game was played in a similar way that Ranji and, Trump and, and Grace did. Um, I think they all sort of, uh, with the reasons that the batting has become what it is today. Um, and then on top of that, he conquered the trickiest thing in cricket, which was playing on these pitches that just were dangerous. And we probably, you know, there's a reason we went to covered wickets. It's to stop uh, these pitches from existing, essentially. Died tragically young as well, wasn't he? 37 years old, Bright's disease, which is a, a kidney disease. Yeah, denied him his uh, kind of post-cricketing years, didn't it? But uh, Victor Thomas Trumper, he goes into the hat for the hashtag goat cricketer for Australia. It leaves us, Jared, with just one nomination, my final nomination. And we, you have to remind me about this man, which is, <laughs> uh, which is terrible. We both of us left him out of our first five. I was thinking about Darren Lehman, but that's my Yorkshire bias. Um, I had Nathan Lyon in, in my original five, and then Jared texted me and said, neither of us got Glenn McGrath on our side. And it's, <laughs> that was a, a massive omission, a massive omission. And he's now in our 10 um, nominations. And Glenn McGrath, you know, saying earlier that, you know, you, you talk about facing Australia as an Englishman, the one bowler you did not want to see with ball in hand was Glenn McGrath. You know, Shane Warne, yeah, of course, he was amazing. you got Jason Gillespie, who I, I know quite well from his time at Yorkshire, a superb bowler as well, a very underrated. I think in, in, his, in his time, mm. Jason Gillespie would have been one of the main bowlers of a team. But with Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne in the side, he was always under their shadow a little bit. And Glenn McGrath, absolutely incredible. And I don't think this nation has ever ever celebrated an, an injury as much as when Glenn McGrath <laughs> stood on that cricket ball at Edgebaston and was uh, ruled out of that test match. And that changed that uh, 2005 Ashes uh, series for me because he was so crucial to that Australian bowling lineup, metronomic, just had such control of the ball. And that is why he took 563 test match wickets at 21.64, which is pretty decent, isn't it? And, you know, that's all the way around the world. That's having to uh, also play one-day matches as well. He played 250 one-day internationals, 124 test matches. So the workload was there for him too. And just an incredible, incredible bowler. And England would have been delighted when he retired. Yeah, just... uh... One of the things I remember about him is that he went to India and in India, India decided to block him out and basically try and nullify him. And, you know, uh, we, a lot of great cricketers throughout the years, you know, Keith Miller and, and you know, and Dennis Ali, 
two other fast bowlers on this particular list. They never had to go to um, India. Well, I think Lily played four tests in Asia, a couple in Pakistan, I think, and, and uh, maybe um, some in India as well. But they weren't really tested. But we know by that stage, by the time the McGrath sort of came along, we knew that, you know, uh, a lot of very good bowlers, um, of, uh, you know, um, we're going to seam bowlers, we're going to struggle when they got to India. There's a difference between being good in India, the way that Dale Steyn was, um, and Dale Steyn was a brilliant bowler in India, and actually having the opposition say, even when we're in India, it is going, we are going to try not to play a shot against this player. And I think that is the level of bowler that Glenn McGrath was. Um, in, incredible looking back. I don't think there's any way to, that, that younger generations, especially bowlers, get faster and faster. They're going to look back at this guy who bowled mid-130s, um, he did could bowl quicker than that when he was younger, but but basically spent most of his career around mid one thirties. Who didn't swing the ball, who nipped it around a little bit, but again, you know, I, I wouldn't say he seen the ball as much as someone like Sean Pollock did, um, or you know, um, uh, certainly some other bowlers um, of that kind of era. Maybe even Kirtley seen it around more than him. But the ability to he had this elephant like memory. The minute he saw a batsman, he would remember everything about them. If you ask him, you know, who his 174th wicket is, he'll be able to tell you in a heartbeat. He remembered every shot a batsman had ever played against him, therefore. So he had this sort of, he was like an analyst built into a cricketer. He was probably close to the most accurate bowler there's ever been. I did some research a few years ago to work out basically how accurate Yorker bowlers are. And it's very hard to tell. But essentially, you know, we can't tell if they're always trying to bowl a Yorker. But my guess is, in, in more often than not, a Yorker is bowled somewhere, uh, you know, a Yorker is uh, accurately bowled between 25% and 33% of the time. Uh, McGrath was the only batsman, bowler I found who was over 50%. Uh, and uh, we now know that, you know, he couldn't hit a coin and John Buchanan did a scientific test with him and everything. But compared to almost every other cricketer ever, he just didn't bowl poor balls. And he had the height and he had the wrist position and he had this memory and I would even say I would say Curtly Ambrose was a better natural bowler than him. Say Sean Pollock was a better natural bowler than him. I'd say Jason Gillespie was a better natural bowler than him. But when you put everything together uh, with with McGrath, the fact that he almost never seemed to have any sort of major injuries, uh, the fact that he could bowl fast when he needed to and and slow down when he needed to, the fact that um, he didn't rely on an outswinger, which a lot of great bowlers before him did, that he could bowl in any conditions in any country on earth. Uh, he just seemed to have this endless sort of stream of, uh, you know, skill sets. And when you look at him, he's basically not that much different to what, you, you know, an England county bowler was at that time. It's just that he did everything in the, you know, in the 99th percentile. He was just at the very top of his game for every single skill set that he needed. And, um, you know, you, you people are gonna, like I said, people are going to go back and look at these replay and go, this guy? This is the guy that took all the wickets. They're not going to get it. But you had to watch the hours and hours of pressure that he built into every spell um, and the ability to see the slightest error in a batsman. I think there are a lot of really great bowlers who are, are great because they bowl a lot of great balls. I don't know if McGrath bowled as many great balls as, as some of the other guys we've already mentioned. I just think he bowled so many balls in the exact right area to the batsman he was up against. And let's not forget, you know, Lara spent a lot of his time just going, how do I, how am I going to face this guy? 
And if you're as good as Lara, he probably Lara probably never had that conversation before in his life. I, I would imagine Mike Atherton still has nightmares about him now because he had had him in his back pocket too. And I remember yeah. that the first day of that Lord's Test match in uh, in 2005 turned out to be the iconic series and the one that we all remember. But um, I remember England bowling out Australia, and you started to think, "Hey, blimey, England are doing okay." Then you saw McGrath get the ball on that first evening. He got the ball. I think he took four wickets and he 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 bowled beautifully. And you just thought, "Oh, we're back to normal now. It's going to be Australia fighting back, and this is all over." And Australia obviously won that first Test match, but then obviously England bounced back from there. But he was just somebody that you know, as an England supporter, you just never wanted to see him bowling because he was always capable of just ripping. Your, your, your top order apart and you, you know you forget as well with the, the opening bowlers like Glenn McGrath that, that they're generally bowling against the, the best of the opposition batsmen aren't they and to take the amount mm. of wickets he did with the control that he did just a phenomenal player and I think just just one I mean it kind of goes across the all of the Australians really I mean as an Englishman you kind of or an English boy really you kind of grow up watching the television you grow up kind of almost trained to kind of hate the Australians because they're the opposition, they're the evil people. That's the, that's the, that's the enemy, that's the bad side. We want England to win. So you kind of, you, I, I watched the likes of Jason Gillespie and Glenn McGrath and Ricky Ponting and stuff and you're thinking, oh, I hope you lose. But then you actually meet them. In, in, in your kind of professional life, you meet these guys and you find out that they're actually the nicest guys that uh, have ever walked the planet. I mean, Glenn McGrath is a, a very modest man as well, isn't he? He's very, you know, I, I I just kind of I really like that about the Australians. It's it's almost disappointing that you actually don't find the villains that you expect them to be. Yeah, and you know it's I, every every generation I suppose that cricketers have had different sort of experience as well. So you do get you are you know Shane Warne is an incredibly interesting case study in uh, fame um, in a way that uh, perhaps. Keith Miller didn't have to live with. So, you know, you're going to have more extremes within, within that. But, yeah, look, you know, uh, I've never had a problem with, with McGrath. He's always seemed like a fairly normal person. But I wouldn't have wanted to bat against him, to be fair. Um, <laughs> but just on uh, just on the list, uh, just to run through a couple of players that we haven't mentioned very quickly. Oh, you're going to cheat, uh, you're gonna Adam, cheat now and add some nominations in, are you? Go on then. No, I just think it's because Australia's been so good. I just think it's worth mentioning that you know, and you know, Adam Gilchrist has missed out on this list. For Absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, I think his his uh, role in changing wicketkeeping batting is overstated when you look at the numbers because I think people are already starting to look for more batsmen. And obviously, Alex Stewart did it before him, so he's certainly not the first one. But the impact that he had in a relative short time in Test cricket was phenomenal because he played it in a way that you know didn't seem to exist before him. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned Greg Chappell or Neil Harvey, both absolute out-and-out great um, batsmen as well. Neil Harvey probably slightly forgotten just because he didn't play in as much, maybe as quite as a famous uh, when he was older. So he played for the Invincibles when he was quite young. Uh, Fred Spofford, um was probably the first great uh, bowler that we had in uh, well in Australia, but also in, in cricket. Like, you know, a few other players out there like... Um, uh, uh, Clary Grimmett, uh, and uh, you know we haven't mentioned Steve Waugh, who yeah, again I think some of these guys have just been overshadowed by other players. Alan Border as as a captain, so you know it is it's an incredible list of cricketers that Australia have had over the years, and uh, uh, I think there's it's now undoubtedly you know, and I say this as a cricket historian more than as an Australian, but this is undoubtedly the best you know the best nation that's ever played the game, and it's. Uh, you know, it's such a hard thing to come up with a list here. Like the sort of players who are going to miss out 
um, on this list. Like someone like Alan Davidson probably doesn't make doesn't probably doesn't make the top twenty players in Australia. And what an you know he was probably the first truly great left arm seamer that ever existed. And more than handy number eight batsman as well. And we you know we've only mentioned Richie Benno for commentating here. Richie Benno absolutely. Uh, I mean, you had Nathan Lyon on your list, as, uh, you know, uh, which would have had him as the third spinner. But Richie Benno as a captain, a batsman and a bowler is an absolute great. And would, for most countries, being almost locked to be their captain. Um, and, you know, I'm not even sure how you'd slip him in to this team because it is it is so strong. Um, and, you know, I, when, you, when you first gave me this list, I almost put Warwick Armstrong in. Uh, who is, you know, not famous today, but Warwick, you know, before Warwick Armstrong, Australian cricketers were known as the nice ones. And Warwick Armstrong came along and just, you know, the big ship just sort of said, no, no, we're not going to be that way anymore. And he was a horrendous human being on the field and probably, <laughs> you know, has laid the way for how Australia has played cricket for the next 100 years since and was a, an incredibly interesting cricketer himself. Um, just so many, uh, you know, randomly great Australian cricketers. And it is one of the good things about when I did do the history of cricket, one of the great things about, um, uh, you know, covering Australia and England is that there's so much information about these players out there. I think that so many other countries have had just as many good stories. It's just very, very hard to get the information out. And uh, one thing that because of England's obsession with Australian cricket, it means that, it, you know, and then Australia went on to have some great cricket riders as well. Um, we've actually had the ability to, to keep on top of those. But uh, certainly when it comes to, you know, looking at greats of Australian cricket, it's just it's almost an, an endless list of, you know, the fact that Matthew Hayden doesn't get mentioned here and, um, uh, you know, and some truly, you know, some of the other great invincible players, like Ray Linwell and those sorts of guys. It just it goes on and on and on, um, which does tell you just how great they've been, um, at, you know, per capita. I still think Barbados has got Australia beat, um, but when it comes down to it, 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 it's a very special cricket player. Absolutely. I've had my five nominations. Jared's now had about 23, but we'll, we'll let him off that. <laughs> but we've, uh, the 10 that we've mentioned on this podcast, Keith Miller, Bill O'Reilly, Shane Warne, Steve Smith, Victor Trumpet, Don Bradman, Damian Martin, Ricky Ponting, Dennis Lilly, and Glenn McGrath. Jared, if I was to get you to select just one of those as the greatest of all time, Look, Tom Bradman's the greatest cricketer Australia's ever had, and he's probably the greatest cricketer anyone's ever had. If I'm, I'm picking, I'd probably go with maybe Miller. <laughs> um, those those five years that you know, or six years, whatever it was. No, it's probably eight years, wasn't it? nine years that he missed. Um, you know, are very very um, telling with him. Um, but you know, I think Bradman is the greatest cricketer that Australia's ever had, and probably that the game has ever had. And Unless something incredible happens, and I can't wait to see it, I can't imagine there's ever going to be a better cricketer than Don Bradman. I'll tell you what, if he comes along, he's going to be worth watching, isn't he? He's going to be absolutely worth yes. watching. Jared Kimber, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Cricket Badger podcast today. We've gone through the Australians. You can have a listen out there to our nominations, and you can vote over the next few weeks at cricket underscore badger on the Twitter feed. We're going to pick out who is the greatest Australian Test match player of all time. Jared, thanks very much for your time, mate. No problem. Thanks for having me on. It's that Badger style. There we go then. That's the end of our discussion. The preliminary chats are over. If you tune into at cricket underscore Badger on the Twitter feed, you will see me draw out the 32 names. And over the next week or so, we will decide 
Collectively, with our votes, who is the greatest Australian test cricketer of all time? My thanks, massive thanks actually, to Jared Kimber. I've never actually spoken to Jared before. We've both worked in cricket for a long time, but we kind of tend to go down different routes, I think, in terms of our, our working lives and obviously being very much aware of his work. But uh, yeah, a real joy actually to uh, talk to Jared in the, uh, well, not, I was going to say in the flesh, but uh, as, as close to in the flesh as lockdown allows, down a telephone line. I think you'll agree, a great guest on the two parts of this Australian hashtag goat cricketer special. Really good, really knowledgeable, and I thank him very much again for his time in joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast. My thanks again to tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow as well on at tvsportsblog. Thank you to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Please like, subscribe, leave a nice comment. If you've enjoyed the Cricket Badger podcast, don't leave any comments if you haven't. And I will now pass the button across to you. Follow at cricket underscore badger. Get those votes in. Have some debates as well about who is the best Australian test match cricketer. We will find out who is the greatest Australian test match cricketer of all time. Got some terrific interviews coming up. I'll name a few names just to whet your appetite. I've got Billy Godelman coming on, the Derbyshire captain. Got Keaton Jennings, Lancashire batsman and England batsman. And I also talked to Dion Kreish, the former Yorkshire bowler. Really good chat with Dion as well. Three of the nicest guys that you will meet in cricket. Billy, Keaton and Dion. Make sure you tune in. Until we meet again, Cricket Badgers, get those votes in. Hashtag Goat Cricketer for Australia. Take care, look after each other, stay safe and healthy. And I'll see you very, very soon indeed. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.